Hello and welcome to A New and Ancient Story. This is a podcast, a series of conversations, interviews, and occasionally speeches dedicated to the transformation of self and society. The basic idea is that we are moving from a story of separation to a new story, new for the dominant culture at least, of interbeing. What that means will become apparent as you listen to this series. We explore things like technology, spirituality, agriculture, healing, economics, politics, ecology, relationships, education, I mean pretty much everything that is undergoing a transition today as our old story nears collapse. If you want to engage these ideas more deeply, you can come to our website, charleseisenstein.net. Okay, here I am, Charles Eisenstein, with Sayer G again. And I say again, not because you've heard us before, but because we've tried a few times now to record and something always went wrong. Joking, we're joking that the Illuminati are interfering with us. Well, it's Mercury retrograde, right? <laughs> and it's Mercury retrograde, yeah. <laughs> and it's 5G and Vladimir Putin is in it on it too. So Bots, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, we've got lots of excuses, but here we are today. Um, Sayer is the founder um, and operator of Green Med Info, which is one of the biggest alternative health websites. And his new book is called Regenerate. And um, I kind of know him more as a friend and somebody who I feel like, you know, like one of those people where, where like you get together and you're almost tripping over yourselves because there's so much to talk about. That's kind of how uh, I experienced there. So welcome to the conversation. Thanks, Charles. Same here. You came to my wedding and I really wanted to talk with you. And it was the same thing. I was just like, well, I wish we could talk about these 20 things, but I have to go hang out with other guests and get married. So right. this, this is our opportunity. <laughs> this is our quality time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, so much we could talk about. Maybe we can start with, uh, because this is happening in the uh, beginning of March 2020. So the coronavirus is on everybody's minds. I wrote an essay and I didn't publish, and I probably won't publish about it. Um, for one thing, it felt like pitching a tent in a storm. Like yes. anything I say is just going to get swept away in the hysteria. And I kind of don't want to get crucified. And also, I don't know, I felt that there was a little bit in me of kind of crusading against the crusade, which is actually more of a crusade. So I don't know. I still might publish it or rewrite it or something. But um I'm curious, you know, Sarah, you're, I mean, I have like this kind of bird's eye view of it. You're way more knowledgeable about disease and physiology and so forth. So I'm, I'm really curious what you think about it. I mean, there's all these theories out there, you know, it's actually 5G or it's a genetically mod modified bioweapon or it's a hoax entirely or, I mean, and then there's the mainstream narrative and variants of it. There's so much, it can, can be really confusing. Yes. Um, so aside from like, staying away from Corona beer. Um, <laughs> what advice could you give or what, what's your take on it? Wow. Well, I love what you said as far as pitching a tent in a storm. And I've been in a similar place. If I wasn't focused so much on other things that are really in a way for my own well-being, you know, the Regenerate book and project was really about me trying to focus on something other than, you know, your, your yearly, uh, plague that's being marketed as is going to kill us all 
because we've seen this with so many previous examples of swine flu and bird flu and Ebola and Zika. It's, it's just amazing, really. And I'm not saying that there isn't a real threat, but I do feel that um, I'm also not wanting to jump into the frying pan right now because I think that what you said in a conversation that we had the other day, which I think everyone should be listening to this um, and focusing on this point, is that there is a layer of reality, if not a very definition of reality, where in a way mutually exclusive points of views or truths coexist. And that sounds absurd. And yet I don't really know any way to describe what's going on beyond affirming what you pointed out. So I know that sounds abstract, but I think that right now, yes, there's a potential that this coronavirus was somehow anthropogenically manipulated in a, let's say, a, a laboratory. Could be bioweapons, maybe not. Maybe they were doing something aspirational, like trying to save the world by producing some new vaccine against the common cold virus. Very doubtful. Uh, if you go to the CDC website, you see that it is basically coronavirus before the patented form. It's novel, right? According to them, was just the common cold, basically. So we're in a situation now where we really don't know who to believe or what to believe, but um, I, I'm very curious about what you've written. So I, I would like to ask you a little bit about what you think, uh -huh. and then we can maybe just dovetail off that. Yeah, okay. I suppose I'll come out of the closet about it. Um, what, what strikes me is that the most dangerous virus is the virus of fear mm -hmm. that rides atop the coronavirus. And it's striking, like, even if there isn't a conspiracy to use this as a way to implement social controls and abridgment of civil liberties. When, when you are, you know, how the saying, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, or if you're really good with a hammer, then you're always looking for nails. Mm. So here is a threat that finally the authorities know what to do about, because they don't know what to do about, and neither does the public know what to do about autoimmunity, um, depression, suicide, opioid addiction, alcoholism, and so on, which are killing orders of magnitude more people than the coronavirus. Like they have no idea what to do about these things. The tidal wave of anxiety and depression, for example, and addiction. So there's no state of emergency declared about this. Mm -hmm. But now here comes something that the technologies of control can actually do something about. Yes. So finally, here's a threat that we, we can address with quarantines, with vaccinations, with controlling people's movements, forced medical examinations, travel bans, et cetera, et cetera. Like, so even if it wasn't a conspiracy, the, the authorities are like almost happy. And I'm, I don't, I'm not saying that they are taking pleasure in people's suffering at all but it's kind of validating. And as for the public, it's kind of the same thing. Here's a proxy for all of our nameless, unspeakable fears and our, our sense of being out of control and helpless. If we focus all of those onto this thing that we can understand, like this is something that the public mind can understand, a disease caused by a pathogen that is a threat to us and we have to win a war against this bad thing. Yes. That's a basic mind form that everybody's comfortable with. 
And so we know what to do. And so it, it gets elevated in the public discourse. So that that's essentially, and, and and then I guess what else I was saying in the essay is, as we take a step, one after another step, and you mentioned like Zika, you know, and all all these other diseases, like, are we really wanting to go to a world where we no longer congregate in public because we're afraid to, where sports events are talking about banning, you know, like um, not having the Olympics, you know, like they're banning all these events. I think Switzerland or something banned any public gathering of over a thousand people. You know, people are talking about having virtual meetings instead of real meetings, you know, conferences are being canceled. Exactly. Um, you know, I, I could see a world where it is unthinkable that you would go out to a bar or go out to a public place and actually interact with other people without wearing, you know, a hazmat suit or something like that. Yeah. Like, is that really where we want to go? And why is security and safety so overridingly important? Mm -hmm. Is life just to survive? You know, um, is there a balance to be struck between risk and and security in the name of fun, of exploration, of development? So this, these are the things that I've been thinking about. I love it. This is absolutely essential um, because there is a biopolitical substrate you know to the surface narrative that has been unfortunately amplified virally around the world primarily through mainstream media but i think hybrid and alternative media is now joining in uh in reifying what is you know you know really an invisible threat right it's not that different from in the middle ages when demons used to plague people now there are reasons why those behaviors appeared to involved demons, it could have been ergotized bread. We now know there's sort of an explanation, but you know, there were very psychosomatic or psychogenic processes at play and they still are. And so the meme that you're addressing of fear as a vector itself in a way of inexorable debility and maybe even lethality is powerful because in those videos of the Chinese spraying their entire populations with military style, you know, biocidal agents, how are they determining what is caused by immunotoxicity and suppression from the chemical and what is caused by one of probably trillions of viruses in the environment we're exposed to daily? It's absolutely absurd. Unless you run the PCR testing, you know, in real time to determine, you know, whether there is actually evidence of some type of uh, viral overgrowth within a body. And even then, you can't prove that it's caused anything. All disease is multifactorial. It's just rather absurd from the perspective of what you might call the new biology, meaning post 2000s when we discovered the microbiome. It was an event horizon, after which we had to acknowledge that there really is no other when it comes to germs because we're primarily comprised of them. If we look at the definition of what we are through the lens of how many protein coding genes we contain within the eukaryotic nucleus, 99-fold more is contributed by viruses, bacteria, fungi, helmets, right. right? So the absurdity, you know, of germ theory vis-a-vis the discovery of the holobiont, which is what we essentially are, which is a near infinite number of microorganisms somehow that we experience as ourselves, you know, it just, it totally in a way implodes or challenges the PSYOP that I think we're both seeing run right now. So 
it just stimulates so many thoughts in me as far as what we're actually experiencing right now. But one thing that you really hit on, which is when we had the Patriot Act post 9-11, and it was endless war, right? Terrorists are everywhere, and we're going to preemptively, you know, basically run illegal wars in places overseas that just happen to be on top of oil that we want. Uh, this is transmogrified or sublimated into what we're presently seeing as the same PSYOP because they can preempt sovereign states' rights and invade any one soils under the auspices of saving their lives from a deadly threat that, again, is invisible. They're doing it in Africa with Ebola. Now we're seeing this uh, sort of like a test in a way to see how far they can push it. I thought they were going to contain it in China, but it's definitely gone global. And here's the real challenge is that they would – they're giving all these conspiracy theorists fodder, like, I mean, uh, fuel. Like, in October, was it 2019, they ran this massive Hollywood-style event called Event 201. John Hopkins, the World Economic Forum, and uh, the Bill uh, and Melinda Gates Foundation ran a fake pandemic that was scripted to kill 61 million people around the world, implode the economy, uh, require military intervention, and it was from a coronavirus infection. You can't make this stuff up. I mean, everyone can Google it. Go to event 201. So I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I like to put little facts together and connect the dots like you do. But, oh, my Lord, we're really in it right now, Charles. Uh-huh. Wow. So, yeah, a couple things to say about that. One is, yeah, the, the basic thought forms underneath the war on terror are very similar to the thought forms underneath the war on fill in the blank. Uh, and especially if it's this global insidious thing that you have to have spe- special instruments to detect. And it's kind of, it can sneak in under any barrier, you know, like there's no limit to the amount of control that's necessary to keep it out. And just like terrorism, it never goes away. It's not like you defeat Hitler and the war is over because terror is a concept how do you win a war against a concept you know it's a it's a strategy terrorism is a strategy how do you win a war against a strategy and in a similar vein uh, infectious disease it, the possibility of it is always there so that's why i i'm a little concerned that the measures that are being taken to prevent the spread of coronavirus will become permanent because the rationale for them will always be there. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so what happened was in 2001, right, there was the Model States Health Emergency Powers Act that was drafted somewhere in Georgia that gave, like, a template for states to basically replicate, like ALEC, you know, just, you know, like a bill uh, mill. And what it did was it enabled states to call what is essentially a a martial law effect into being in cases of there being some type of infectious disease. Um, And then it was, I think, 2009 when Bush wrote in executive orders, making it a equivalent to being almost a bioterrorist to be infected with a novel form of H1N1. And it's an interesting word, novel. It's like you think of a novel, right? It's uh, it's fiction. And it, it really refers to a story being 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 written that is absolutely not based on evidence um it's really um more like theater 
you know. So I just would say that what we're seeing here is the state laying claim, sort of like through a new ontology on the bodies of everyone that, you know, can be infected by some, again, invisible agent. So it's a form of, um, I think, the redeclaring the human body as chattel, you know, and the state as the owner. So I, that's kind of what I'm seeing here, but, you know, I'd like your opinion. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, you can certainly see it that way. Uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's what rights are circumvented or declared null and void because there's a war on. This happens in war too. Like civil liberties are abridged during a war because the important thing is the war effort to defeat the enemy. And then after we've done that, then we can talk about civil liberties. So same thing, like, okay, yes, yes, freedom of association. Yes, yes, freedom of the press, you know, freedom of expression, et cetera, et cetera. But right now there's something more important. So the uh, authorities that would like to maintain control like it if there's something that comes along, even if they didn't machinate it themselves and create it themselves, they naturally gravitate toward any narrative that validates the abridgment of civil liberties and personal freedoms because it gives them license to, to do what they're good at in a way. And they're doing it with all good intentions, I think, or a lot more good intentions than conspiracy theories theorists ascribe to them. Wait, you're talking about me? <laughs> yeah, it's per to protect us, you know? Yeah. And, but here's one more thing I noticed about the similarity between, um, okay, and before I even say this, like, I could be totally wrong. This could be like a dangerous epidemic that's going to kill tens of millions or hundreds of millions of people. Right. That could happen. So far, it doesn't actually look that way, you know, compared to the flu, it seems more virulent, but there's the matter of un, un, undocumented cases. You know, if you compare people who actually go to the hospital, then flu is m more lethal. Well, so, and there's always been question about whether the statistics that are officially released are accurate. And I, I don't know right. that that's so much conspiracy theory as just how do you validate you know, the cause of an illness and, and just attribute it as, you know, like the Koch postulate to a single, you know, disease. Right. So yeah, that's a whole other thing. I mean, um, we can go there, but I just want to finish this thought, which is simply that, that uh, another similarity between terrorism as the reason to suspend certain rights and freedoms and coronavirus, the similarity is that in the end, neither of them actually turn out to be that serious. You know, like after 9-11, um, it didn't take that long before people be stopped being terrified of terrorism, didn't really believe it anymore, didn't believe that there was much of a threat. And I wonder if that's going to happen with these infectious diseases, which, you know, when we get warned again and again and again, I can remember with terrorism, there was the red alert and the amber alert. You know, we're on amber alert, you know. Maybe at the beginning, people were like, oh, my God, amber alert. Oh, no. But after amber alert had been going on for a few years, yeah. people didn't actually believe it. And one got the impression that the authorities didn't believe it either. Hmm. Now, right now, we're kind of in the 9-11 aftermath, like the stage of the infectious disease terror alert, where people 
are scared, not quite as scared as the press is. Mm. Um, but, you know, people are concerned, like it's working, you know, kind of like 9-11 was working to terrify people. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, like we could go into various theories of 9-11 and these competing narratives, um, but it's kind of working. But I just wonder, you know, I, I think fundamentally the age of infectious disease is over and that humanity faces totally different challenges than we face in the 18th and 19th century. Mm. Um, but, you know, as it plays out and it turns out not to um, confirm the alarms, I mean, some of the alarms are alarming, but it plays out. It doesn't confirm those. Are people going to become inured to right. this? You know, is it really going to work? In other words, from the perspective of those who would like to, mm. yeah. Well, I would just, I love where you're going with this because I think you're, you're probably right about us transitioning to an age where, you know, infection isn't the primary concern or there's more complexity there. But I, I would say that what I feel is happening in the sort of movement of historical moments to this moment is that we had a nascent or larval um, a sort of like a narrative fascism in place with scientism leading to medical monotheism. And so the concept is that there's only one true, you know, thing, medically speaking, based on only one view of the body, actually. And it naturally leads to, you know, rendering any opposition to that, you know, heretical. And there's usually an inquisition that follows. And we're already seeing that in, in my space, because in mm-hmm. quote, natural medicine, which is kind of an absurd, you know, sort of like a redundancy, you know, to me, you know, that there's, there's something really like new quacky weird medicine called taking petrochemical derivatives and patenting them and then introducing them into the body and causing side effects, therapeutic actions in a certain context. That's, that's primarily xenobiotic medicine. And that's the default now. But natural medicine is obviously, obviously hundreds of thousands of years old. Um, But anyway, so I feel like what we're seeing in terms of this present operation unfolding is already latent within the way that we already worship the scriptures of the Holy Church of what is essentially eminence-based and not evidence-based medicine. So you go to the CDC's website, they pronounce it's truth by proclamation, vaccines are safe and effective. There's no reference to the Cochrane collaboration, which is relatively independent, although not any longer because they accepted money from the Gates Foundation and now things have imploded when their founders left. Um, but the reality is b- before that, they were saying Cochrane database reviews on, say, flu vaccines, there's no evidence at all showing them safe and effective unequivocally for children, for adults, for elderly, for those who work with the elderly. And yet that was health policy is you have to get it and anyone who questions it is a quack, is dangerous, and should probably be put in jail or their kids taken from them. That's like literally the narrative that's been spun over the past few years. So I don't, I'm not that surprised by what's going on, but it is disturbing to see them literally lock down travel, the markets imploding. You know, it's, it's, this is a real agenda we're seeing unfold before our eyes, but it's been in the works, I think, for decades, honestly. Yeah, I don't know. Um... I'm not convinced that it's a conscious agenda. Uh, I think that, that, um, How about the reptilian overlords? <laughs> yeah. I mean, if, if you want to make it a conscious, 
a conscious agenda, I have to locate the consciousness outside of actual human beings on in the realm of myth or the collective psyche beings that are composed of human beings and that operate on a more etheric level. And so that in, in that sense to, you know, affix the, the blame or the, the conspiracy on reptilian overlords, you know, extraterrestrials or demonic powers is kind of, in a way it's, it is aligned with what I think, you know, that what's happening isn't in literal objective 3D reality as we know it or as we've conceived it. And this gets, you know, into some, down some really mysterious rabbit holes, but it liberates me in my thinking because I don't any longer have to decide which of these narratives is objectively true. And I can hold them separately. So Stella today was talking about this YouTube video where the lady is claiming that, that the coronavirus is a cover story for illness caused by the 5G rollout. Yeah, I've looked at that. Yeah. And so, you know, there's these data points, you know, that, you know, supposedly a big 5G tower was put in Wuhan in China and it's, you know, all the places where the virus has been breaking out, that's where 5G has been implemented. And like, there's this whole narrative. And my skeptical mind was like, really? Well, you know, isn't Shanghai even more advanced in 5G than Wuhan? Why didn't it break out there? And I thought Moscow was rolling out 5G. Why didn't it break out there? And you know, I had all these objections in my mind, but I don't know. Yeah. Does anybody who's researched this really know the state of 5G rollout in Shanghai? I think or, Alexa probably has a better uh, chance of knowing. The NSA and Alexa would probably know. Yeah, who know? Like, I don't know. You know, so here's a narrative, you know, and then there's the, and then there's these other narratives. And the way I hold them is I, and then the, the standard narrative too. And minor variations on the standard narrative. So I, I like to hold them mm -hmm. and see who I become as I inhabit those narratives and how I see the world. Uh, do I feel helpless? Do I feel activated? Do I uh, feel defeated? Do I feel despair? What view of human nature does it induce in me to hold these different narratives? You remind me of Walt Whitman in Leaves of Grass where he says, I contain multitudes. You know, it's sort of an orientation to experience a being or being human or whatever you want to call it, which is one of the modes that you're talking about where we can potentially inhabit all these different narratives and, and feel them. I, I really appreciate that because there is always latent within each thought form an entire dimension, a whole world of feeling. And some of them are just sort of like in the basement, you know, pulling the strings, but, uh, you know, I, I like what you're talking about. It's kind of phenomenological. Yeah. For you though, like it's not just like this philosophical question because, um, your, your, um, career, your, your business, your enterprise has been affected by censorship, right? So it's not well, theoretical. Right. I mean, but it's, I don't prefer the description of my focus in terms of business terms, because the reality is I live in, you know, like everyone else in this country, I have children and I got into, you know, my advocacy around health rights and vaccines because I had children, you know, I still have children. I'm in Florida. There's a bill right now that would basically force them to be vaccinated and everyone else in the state 
if um, it goes through, or we take them out of school and then we're homeschoolers. And before you know it, like Pan said in California, it's like a breeding ground of infection to, you know, be in an alternative school, like a Waldorf or homeschooler. I mean, this is literally pogrom level stuff we're seeing and, and, and the, the rhetoric. So, you know, this, I mean, but yes, my platform has been profoundly attempted at censorship in last year. I mean, it was basically kicked off MailChimp, which sounds like a ridiculous platform, but it's enterprise. It's based in Atlanta, Georgia, and they're CDC foundation partners. So they're legally, as I understand, um, required to forbid any communication on their platform, uh, which is quote anti-vaccine, which in, and, and that means just questions vaccines or posts a JAMA study that indicates there could be some harm or it violates that narrative. Um, another thing I just wanted to say real quick is that this concept of like one narrative that 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 runs runs all narratives. I mean, this is what we're talking about with scientism. You know, that there is just one true view. That's what I love about what you just said is that, you know, as a microcosm, if you're able to hold multiple perspectives and, and not only just tolerate them, but feel them out and see who you are, I, I want to know more about that, honestly. Mm -hmm. Where does that come from? When did you come to that? Is it in a book of yours? Um, I mean, I, I kind of touch on it in various books and some essays. Uh, and maybe in the metaphysics course a little bit. Um, but usually I only go deep into that territory in, in small groups. Or maybe I just haven't fully developed it yet. Um, it's hard for the modern mind to grasp that reality isn't an objective thing outside of ourselves that can be verified or rejected through an impartial process of matching theories to evidence. Like, you know, the reality is it's out there, you know, and I can believe one thing and you can believe another thing, but only one of us is right or none of us is right. But we can't both be right if we're in contradiction. Like it can't be correct that vaccines are the greatest medical innovation that has saved millions of people and protects us from these scary infectious diseases at the same time that it's that that they are ineffective, dangerous, and take the credit for the decline of infectious diseases that should be attributed to other causes like public hygiene or the decline in virulence of viruses as they co-evolve with human beings or something like that, right? There's these, you know, which one's right? They can't both be right. They're totally contradictory. Like well, the modern mind wants to figure out which one is right because then I know what to do. Well, that's ancient too, right? It's Aristotelian logic. A cannot be not A. And when right. wasn't Orwell talking a little bit about holding these contradictory realities simultaneously and sort of double think, although he meant it in a very shadowy way that that's what we're required to believe that, you know, these absurdities um, like love is love is hate, war is peace, you know, stuff like that. Hmm. Yeah, this is related to double think. Boy, I'd have to really think about that one though to to okay. to go into that. Well, in the case of coronavirus that we're kind of experiencing, I think we're we're agreeing that on some level it is vapor 
it's a common cold virus that they're trying to, they, I know this is already probably triggering, trying to foment into something that looks like the next plague. And, you know, for reasons that appear to be to control people. And by the way, it was Foucault that talked a lot about biopolitics, which I think is a better explanation for pharma as a transnational meta, you know, sort of society, because what is it, hundreds of thousands of people employed by them, um, it, versus profit motive. I mean, that's so old school, you know, like, oh, they're just making a killing because of profit. And it's about, it's not about that anymore. It's really more about control. And that's what I'm really most concerned. Okay. So I think that this is another thing I've said in that essay. Um, I think I just, in one sentence, but maybe I want to unfold it a little bit right now. Um, in a way, in a subtle, on a subtle level, the narrative that this is a deliberate plot serving an agenda. Um, and you said, like, you didn't say that you know that it is, but you said, if it's not, boy, they're sure making, doing a good job of making it look like it is a conspiracy with that, whatever that was, 201, what was that? Event 201. Event 201, yeah. Um, but there's something comforting, just as there's something comforting in facing a threat that we can identify and kill. There's also something comforting in seeing this as a conspiracy or uh, a, a conscious plan. Because it... Because then there's something that we can fight and kill. Metaphorically, like, uh, at least. Iteration, yeah. Yeah, here's something we can dominate. Here's something we can resist. Here is a bad thing. And the solution to the problem is to dominate or destroy or defeat the bad thing, yes. which is the same mindset as the standard medical pathogenic model of disease. Yes. There's a bad thing. So that makes me a little suspicious of this narrative that they've been brewing this and now they're going to unveil it because they want to control us. Like what yeah. if it's just happening because conditions are right for it, just like a virus takes over your body because conditions are right for it. This is one of the, my understandings of flus and colds. They're um, actually kind of doing you a service because yeah. Um, yeah, you're familiar with this, but maybe some of the listeners aren't. You know, the idea that that you are eating food that's not good for you, maybe sugar, you're building up these, you know, toxic waste products, and eventually, like, the virus comes in and cleans them up and burns them off with a fever and makes you discharge huge amounts of mucus, you know, which which help excrete these, uh, you know, and you're sweating and, like, right? And this then after you... Yeah, I mean, I can give you biomedical validation for that statement, yeah, through exosomes. Right. <laughs> so I'm not just making it up. No, I don't think yeah. so. But that was the long view of the forest floor metaphor, which I think I, I love, you know, it's a terrain-based, mm -hmm. ter the terrain is, you know, the environment determines. Right. So extending that metaphorically to our society, maybe we have a terrain, we have a physiological condition like in the social physiology that makes us really susceptible to a hysteria like the kind that we have right now, or to, to uh, the meme of infectious disease. Yes. Um, and if that's the case, we don't have to posit a deliberate plan, a deliberate totalitarian agenda, which in a way is like yeah. even more scary because 
at least if there's a deliberate agenda, we know what to do. We can expose those fuckers, you know, yeah. we can take them down, but just as we can kill the germ. But <laughs> if it's not that, then what do we do? Like, what if it's just happening? Well, this is such yeah. a great point because it's like a xenophobia and we're self-quarantining. So it's the ultimate, you know, sort of uh, mm -hmm. ideology that you're pointing out. It's not so clear. And yet we're in a way administering it to ourselves and stocking up and we're afraid to cough and we're wearing masks. Like, you know, in the Middle Ages, they had these big, long, disgusting, horrific beak masks that were going to protect the doctors from bubonic plague and it's just a re it's sort of a, a reiteration of that same theater at this point because the masks don't even work they've already validated they don't work yeah and do the biocides work that they're spraying everywhere I mean, uh, I thought yeah right they work to cause profound dysbiosis which leads to greater susceptibility to things like viral replication but viruses are pretty hard to kill like Right. Or you don't know yourself because here's the thing. There's a whole new view of what a virus is, which is they are basically a byproduct of hijacked exosome production. So cells produce these nanoparticles. They just happen to be the same exact diameter as viruses. They're, they have these little same lipid surfaces, they're like these little balls, and they contain actual viral DNA in them. Mm -hmm. In fact, that's one of the explanations for what HIV is. It's just a hijacked exosome within a cell so it doesn't mean that you can't send a bad text message to someone like there was a friend i had in california no sorry it was hawaii and they got this text message that there were intercontinental ballistic missiles being they were going to land in 30 minutes and her whole 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 family freaked out everyone in the country freaked out and then it turned out to be completely a, a glitch that's what these sort of end these end uh, exosomes that are hijacked can do to other cells is freak them out, but it doesn't mean they're intrinsically bad. They're there to send vitally important genetic information horizontally in real time, which confers profound adaptability to the species. Because the old view was it took 200,000 years or more to change a you know, nuclear. Right. right. So this idea of the, uh, the, um, separate genetic self that's you know locked into the nuclear dna that's this is totally obsolete um we know that horizontal gene transfer is happening all the time cells bacteria using viruses using you write about micro micro rna yeah. um all these exosomes like like bacteria like actually joining together and having bacterial sex in a way like exchanging genes um okay. introns you know ex, i mean all these like like, yeah, so, so the, and this isn't just, you know, some random thing. This is part of how life works, how life communicates with, with each other, how life forms a cohesive whole. So one thing that happens as we institute these policies of insulation and um, antiseptic isolation and control is that, and, and these spraying campaigns um, and, um, I don't know, for me, even like excessive hand washing and all that, um, yeah. like we're interfering with this um, uh, communal um, uh, sharing of, of, of life. And, you know, you spoke about the microbiome and, and dysbiosis, like we're maybe inadvertently worsening the ground conditions that would make us susceptible to infectious disease, but I think more to the point, 
make us susceptible to those diseases that we can't control with control, you know, the, the autoimmune diseases, allergies, things like that, that there's no enemy to fight because it's the body turning against itself. Well, and the reality is that the new biology has shown us that there is something even called natural autoimmunity, which is a default layer of antibodies that are formed against self-structures, some of which actually help to activate nuclear um, programs. So it's almost a different way to understand what these autoantibodies do, some of which are to basically extend our genetic capability several orders of magnitude um, higher in complexity than would otherwise be the case. So, so much of what we thought was pathology is actually not. And that's, you know, more true than ever when it comes to viruses. The discovery of the virome, a lot of the work done at NIH actually has shown that, you know, it's like the hygiene hypothesis. Without certain basic childhood viral infections and exposures, such as chicken pox, measles, the, the immunological self-tolerance doesn't develop. It actually has to happen that we go through a period of being, quote, challenged. Otherwise, the immune system blows back on itself. So-called adaptive humoral immunity, TH2, is already set, ready to deal with these defenses. And if, I'm sorry, challenges, if, if they're not present, then that immune system tends to blow back on itself. So it's really interesting. The absence of, quote, infection may lead to cancer, cardiovascular disease, autoimmunity. So mm -hmm. didn't I read somewhere that um, when people get the measles, they yeah. makes cancer go away or something like that? Yeah. Well, there's actually studies that you can look at that they literally inject measles into tumors and they're called oncolytic viruses. They literally cause certain tumors to die. So, mm -hmm. you know, the reality is that viruses are essential for immunological homeostasis, self-tolerance, um, maturation. And you mm -hmm. now the picture you're destroying life. There's, it's just, we, that's what we are. We're part virus and it's, we just gotta, you know, in fact, what is it? 8% of our protein coding genome is actually retroviral in origin. You know, the scariest mm -hmm. of all term is a retroviral. And then even the way you said, like with, um, you know, all these uh, retroposones and all these little parts of the genome constantly jumping around, they're basically like viruses. So our, our very genome functions in a very viral way. So, so you're basically saying that the worldview that, that sees the world as full of enemies is really misleading. It's a, yeah, it serves primarily a political function, and it has almost no evidence to support it any longer, thanks to, again, the discovery of the microbiome, thanks to the first draft of the Human Genome Project being completed in 2005, where essentially we went to the post-genomic era and realized that environmental exposures, nutrition, all these things are the primary determinant in our health and wellness and our genetic fitness. It's not pre-coded from distant ancestors and just automatically mm -hmm. set up to do this and that. Yeah. I appreciated the, you know, you mentioned some of this in your book. Um, as I said in our last conversation, which was ruined, <laughs> by external forces. Um, <laughs> one of the, it's, and I'm, I guess I'm like totally shifting tracks here, but um, one of the things I really enjoyed was the discussion of nuclear chemistry, transmutation of elements. Uh, nuclear chemistry for those listening means as opposed to normal chemistry where the 
no elements change into other elements and it's just a matter of exchanging or sharing electrons or or you know ionic and covalent bonds and things like that nuclear chemistry involves transmutation of elements like the nucleus of the atom is changing losing protons or neutrons or gaining them changing into other elements and this is not supposed to happen outside of you know stars and hydrogen bombs and nuclear reactors so one of the things that you trace in your book is this entire lineage of scientists who have done this research um, and proposed that it actually is happening inside of cells, um, inside of biological systems. And I'd been a little bit aware of, of one of these researchers, uh, Louis Curvron, um, but apparently it's part of a whole tradition. And I guess to segue from our last topic into this, just that, um, you know, we're, we're, we're like collectively taking step by step into territory that was considered not even real. Like, you know, the idea that evolution can happen uh, through horizontal transfer of genetic information and not only through random mutation, like that was considered, that was heresy uh, only 20 years ago. Um, that was considered like Lamarckism. You know, you can't acquire some gen, some characteristic and pass it down. You know, and, and now it's become more and more accepted. The idea of a virome. I mean, the research you cite on your website is it's coming from you know standard journals. Like yeah. it's not just like this alternative stuff. In fact, none of it is. Like everything on your website is coming from a peer-reviewed journal. So this is relatively well-established territory. But one thing I appreciate about your book is that you're taking a step um, into more, you know, far, the farther reaches of the new sciences. So thank you for doing that. And do you want to say anything about? Yeah. Uh, wow. Well, it's part of, I love your language of going from the old to the new story. You know, in biology, like you said, this concept that, you know, there's this Wiseman barrier where you can't transfer genetic information from the nucleus right beyond messenger rna and then protein that was overturned in ways um with the discovery of reverse transcriptase i would say you know the retrovirus inserts you know information directly back that was 71 but only a few years ago um a study came out showing that somatic cells transfer microRNAs, which actually are master regulators of our entire genome um, to germline cells, this mm -hmm. was a rat model, which then gets carried on into the progeny. So that also is clearly Lamarckian. And right. not that surprising because Darwin was a Lamarckian, actually. So it's like the right. economy. Yeah, um, Darwin wasn't really a Darwinist. He was actually a very humble right? And brilliant I, genius. Yeah. It's like Jesus it's, really not being a modern-day Christian either, you know, it's, or Buddha, modern-day Buddhist. Um, <clears throat> So anyway, so yes, we're at this amazing turning of the ages. I love some of the calendrics of the new age, if you will, but I do feel like we went through the Kali Yuga. In mm -hmm. 2000, is like this event horizon where you see just this grand, grand flowering of new concepts and ideas that actually better match what was always there. It's like in you know, Zen, you always already are enlightened. It's, it's not new. Mm -hmm. We are quantum biology right now. Our bodies are operating at a quantum scale as well as a macro scale. 
Um, but what you point out with Kervan's work is that se several hundred year history of these astute naturalists observing things like in Brittany where the uh, chickens are laying all these calcium rich eggs, they can't figure out where the calcium's coming from. So they observe that it's pecking this silica rich uh, mica and apparently transforming it into calcium and through some unknown process, right? Because as far as we understand conventionally, you need very high temperatures and high pressures to turn elements into one another. Uh, but what's so interesting is that you have the work of Fleischmann and Pons, right? When it comes to cold fusion. And of course they didn't follow protocol and announced it to the media before the scientists could basically shut them up and kick them out of their tent. They got, they got a little excited about it. Yeah, they were pretty excited yeah. because, yeah. you know, it's, but if you go back and you look at the studies and you see their um, reproducibility throughout the world, it's really amazing. There's a whole low energy nuclear transformation community mm -hmm. that has been fighting against the sort of church of scientism around or, or you know, conventional physicists and biochemists around this not being possible, even though it's probably happening at any given moment in any living system, you know, on the planet. And so I can't, I'm obviously not a nuclear chemist, and I'm shocked that there isn't more discussion about this, but I can tell you that there's some very clever Russian physicists that seem to have figured out a mechanism, right, by which uh, these protons and neutrons are, are being changed through wet and warm systems. And there's a whole new burgeoning discipline of quantum biology that's doing the same thing, which is trying to understand how quantum processes are operating to make our bodies do things like smell, you know, make uh, it possible for robins to circumnavigate the world, you know, mm -hmm. quantum yeah. photons and even all these different processes like light harvesting complexes in plants apparently must somehow take into account, you know, a, a relatively large amount of variables through quantum processing to be so efficient. Um, so there's a lot going on here, but fundamentally what I find most fascinating is something like an air plant that is like growing on a copper wire. I don't think we necessarily have to stretch the imagination uh, to observe the things around us and observe, for example, in the mitochondria that there's a inner mitochondrial membrane electric field strength of 30 million volts per meter which is equivalent to a lightning bolt discharge. That's, that's how intense that is. Mm -hmm. The cytosol only recently was found to have 15 million volts uh, per meter. So where's that energy coming from? I think that the best obvious answer is from the quantum vacuum, because that is where you get energy. And, you know, sometimes people will say, well, that's impossible. You can't get something from nothing. Well, there's billions of adherence to the big bang theory, which is that you get a very big something out of a very small nothing. Right. You know, I think that we're on the precipice of this sort of conversation uh, being legitimized. Uh, I'm hoping that the actual scientific community, you know, takes, takes this, you know, further. Mm -hmm. For now, I'm just happy to report on some very interesting things that seem to be out there already. Yeah. Yeah. I wish there were, were more like, um, scientifically literate reporting on some of these things, you know, because a lot of them are, are they haven't really been collated um, into a form digestible to 
educated lay people. Like there are these papers out there, you know, there are these Russian physicists here and these, and, and their job isn't to popularize it. You know, their job is to do the research. So um, I think. Yeah. Karl Marx's of the scientific community to create pamphlets and. Yeah. Or the Sayer G's, you know, like this is like, I really, um, I appreciated the, um, those parts of your book that were a bit more speculative. Um, it's just fascinating, you know, to, so speculative, like one of the things you mentioned is um, cavitation bubbles that generate, uh, you know, star-like temperatures and accelerate protons to the relativistic speeds necessary for nuclear fusion to happen or to knock loose nucleons, you know, like this kind of stuff. It's like, okay, maybe, um, yeah. but you can't, it's not like you're, you were proving or that it's necessarily even been proven that this is happening. There are these experiments that give us reason to think that it could be happening. And for me, that's kind of enough to at least know that if I'm following these trails, it's not like totally at odds with reality, you know, with, with scientific reality. Like I, I refuse to believe that reality is divided into two parts one of which is scientific, verifiable, measurable, quantitative, and the other is forever beyond the bounds of those ways of knowing. You know, I, I, I'd like to see a reunion of reality that heals the modern dualism that has caused so much damage. So I have a question for you that I wanted to ask, I've been wanting to ask. You know, so you have the, this transmutation of elements, you have chickens, in one of these experiments, you know, they measured all of the calcium. They incinerated the chickens afterwards and put them through a, a spectrometer. You know, they measured all of the calcium after and before, and there's more. Where did the extra calcium come from? And it, it corresponds exactly to the amount of silica, that amount of silicon that was lost. Like they have these things. So the point being, and, and you give lots of other examples of ways that you know, that maybe cells can produce boron or whatever. Okay. So let's, let's say, yeah, he, the body can manufacture everything it needs, even the elements that might be missing from the diet. At the same time, you're publishing articles about how important it is to get your boron or to get your this or to get your that from the foods that we eat. And the deleterious effects of, of eating food that has, you know, through industrial farming has been deprived of its nutrients. So my question is, well, what does it matter? Why can't we just make our own? And this anomalous energy, energy production, you know, you're, you're saying like the electric field strength of a mitochondrion or, or a cell, you can't explain, like there's no way that ATP is going to produce that much energy. You know, like the sugars that the cells are using to make energy, no way. Gerald Pollack also did this math. You know, he critiqued way back in a, in a book on the cell, he critiqued the pumps and channels model of cellular physiology. And by one thing that he did is he added it all up. Like all of these ATP dependent pumps mm. for all of these metabolic processes, he's like, really? Like, that's an awful lot of ATP. Let's see. Let's do the math, you know, and there's, there's nowhere near enough. Okay, so we can get energy that's not from food. We can get the 
minerals to elements that's not from food. Well, why do we have to eat food in the first place? What does it matter what our diet is? Why, what, what has to happen for these capacities to really be unlocked? Yeah, great question. I mean, absolutely. I think in an ideal world with an ideal body, I think a number of these capabilities are, are being manifested in a way that's much clearer than in the modern world. So I do believe, yes, that there are. Because so animals starve to death, you know, animals, animals starve to death. They can be malnourished. Plants can be mal mal malnourished. If this actually works, then please explain. Well, I think that's what is so interesting to me is that the anomalies that do exist. I mean, you have an entire global community of so-called breatharianisms, uh, breatharianism mm -hmm. uh, followers. And there's an interesting documentary that I recently watched uh, with Kelly. Uh, it's, I think, called Let There Be Light. And it, mm -hmm. it documents these individuals. It's very convincing. Um, and Jerry Pollack was the one who first told me about this Indian man who is believed to have not eaten or drank, you know, eaten or drank, drank anything for something like 70 years. And he was in a hospital for almost two weeks, they observed, mm -hmm. validated that he didn't. Um, so yes, yeah, so if one human can do it, theoretically, all humans can. I'm very interested in that, you know, as, as sort of a, a case study. Um, but I don't think many of us today are in optimal health, uh, nor fitness. And I imagine that it's not available to all of us at the same degree. But it was Thomas Bearden who wrote about this, about how, you know, you see these examples of a Shaolin master, like running up a wall and just sticking there. It's almost like one of these geckos with their Casimir plate-like feet, you know, harvesting the quantum vacuum. And his point was that everyone has this energy flowing through them, like with the mitochondria an example, multiplying 30 million volts of potential energy times trillion you trillions of cells, you can't even do the math. Um, but that master's learned to direct that energy, transduce it into this dimension. And I think there's something to that, you know. Um, mm. So I don't have to eat my, do I have to eat my Brazil nuts or don't I? The <laughs> <laughs> question is so important, obviously. And uh, yeah, I think given the toxicant exposure, you know, of the Anthropocene, not to mention non-native EMF. I mean, this is unprecedented what we're experiencing. I imagine we need all the support we can to transform light, energy, and, and information into programmable matter. Is it's probably a difficult feat. I believe the mitochondria are doing it. You know, in the book I referenced the army scientist Samuel Goldfein's work supposedly proving that mitochondria function like cyclotron particle accelerators, mm -hmm. transforming light into matter. That's fascinating. So, but, you know, outside of optimal conditions, I'm not so sure. Or intention, maybe it does have something to do with intention. Yeah, because like, you know, polar bears can get malnourished, you know, orcas can get malnourished. They can get like, so, so it's not necessarily that we've fallen from a state where we can do that. Because in the animal world, if, you know, animals don't eat, they starve. So they're not producing all of their energy from breath or from light. So there's something, there's a mystery here. Because, you know, I could take those data points and say, so therefore the breatharians are, are all frauds and so on and so forth. Um, I don't believe that either. But I'm... Um, I guess I haven't come to a um, 
comprehensive narrative that holds all of these data points? Well, I think the one I like most came from Rudolf Hashka, and he um, said that he, there's two streams of nutrition. There's an earthly one and a cosmic one. I believe the cosmic one he's referring to is, was called ether. You know, you could call it the quantum vacuum, zero point energy. You told Shakti, Prana, Chi. I think that is accessible, but it takes certain type of discipline, intention, mastery to, to extract it. I don't personally feel like I have that other than what's available to me intuitively, but you're a martial artist. So maybe no, not really. I don't know. I've seen some, some videos of you doing some pretty intense stuff. With what? Videos of me? Maybe Kelly, Kelly showed me the block. <laughs> that was cool. I mean, for a while I was doing this Qigong practice with, uh, that's it's it like was. very hard practice, hard as in external, like striking myself with objects and things, yes. which I loved actually. And the only yeah. reason I'm not doing it now is I moved away from where my teacher was, but uh, um, it. it wasn't for martial arts. Yeah. yeah. Well, talk to anyone who's been on a plant medicine journey. I think they'll tell you that the world is primarily energy yeah. and information and not physical stuff. So that's, that's a type of confirmation that not, not everyone will have in this life, but for those who have experienced it, it seems like a more reasonable explanation of what's really there. So yes. Yeah. I want to uh, see, uh, to name something that um, probably actually applies to the people who would have already stopped listening in consternation, <laughs> but I'll say it anyway, uh, just to name how polarizing many of the topics that we've been speaking about are, especially the vaccine topic. Um, and then to follow that with this conversation about nuclear transmutation and um, breatharianism and stuff, it offers the opportunity for somebody to easily dismiss as cuckoo nonsense pretty much everything that you're saying, you know, with the device of, well, he believes in so-and-so, or he's an anti-vaxxer, or, and to lump anti-vaxxer together with believer in breatharianism and nuclear transmutation, and sounds like you're denying the theory of evolution, and like you know, to construe things in that way to make you look like this idiot. And that I see as a bigger problem, like that tendency to reduce and write off other people, which is really to dehumanize them um, and to make them into an enemy, to group them into the category of bad, that is a bigger problem than anything else we've been talking about. It's a bigger problem than vaccines. It's a bigger problem than coronavirus hysteria. It's a bigger problem than any of these things. Because like we could be wrong about our opinions. How would we know if we were wrong? How would, and if you disagree with what Sayer's been saying, audience, if you disagree with what Sayer's been saying about vaccines or whatever, how do you know that you're right? If you use the device of writing off as idiots or charlatans, those who hold an opposing view, or as unscientific, or as whatever deprecating idea or epithet that you deploy toward these people. Um, 
if they're right, how would you ever know that when you won't even look deeply at what they're saying because you already know that it's bullshit? Like, and, and to universalize this question, I'm sure that some of my opinions are wrong about something in the world. How will I ever know that? And how will the Shiites and the Sunnis ever come to peace when they just each know that the other side is, you know, following the ideology of Satan or whatever they think? And how will, or the Christians and the Muslims, you know, or the Hindus and the Muslims, and, or the Jews and the Palestinians, or, or the vaxxers and the anti-vaxxers, or the pro-choice and the pro-life, or like just take any of these polarizing issues, whether it's in medicine or outside of it, what's it going to take for us ever to come into unity? It's going to take a different approach to knowledge than trying to decide who's good and who's bad. Um, and so I want to invite anyone listening, hold to mainstream views about vaccines, for example, and you've listened this far, I want to congratulate you. Um, it is no small thing to hold a listening when something that triggering comes up. Like if you're capable of doing that already, even just to, to stay in the room, that reveals a certain cultivation that, that you've had. And because um, honestly, you know, I have my opinions. I haven't actually revealed them in this conversation, what I think about vaccines. Um, you could probably guess, but, you know, I have my opinions. And uh, some of them might be right. Some of them might be wrong. Uh, the truth might be more mysterious than any of us have any idea of. And so for me, this is like the meta issue that underlies all other issues, the issue of polarization and what needs to be sacrificed to discover truth. If I could just add, Charles, that I, what I love about your work, I mean, it's sort of encapsulated for me in the phrase, which I actually made part of my wedding vows which is the more beautiful world our heart knew is possible. I the more beautiful world our hearts knew is possible. <laughs> yeah. Because it's, it's really to be fundamentally true that when we engage in, in conversation where there is an other, where someone is either right or wrong, it, there's a, it's an important layer. I engage in it all day long. But when it comes to the dehumanization part, I have to catch myself because there is a they that emerges and I start to find myself getting upset and I feel like they're trying to hurt me or someone I love. But fundamentally, we can all agree that it comes from a place of being afraid that something we love and care about will be taken away. And what I want to do, what I think you, you're trying to do is facilitate an experience of openness where we can really fall back in, in love with something. It could be anything, but something it could be a pet, it could be food, it could be the world, hopefully, certain aspects because without that direct experience of something beautiful, you know, I don't know that there's, there's no hope, honestly. Mm -hmm. so I'm not here to be right. I mean, I wouldn't have written this book if that were the case. I know there's going to be plenty of people that would be jumping all over me for just referencing some odd phenomenon. Uh, but I'm so happy I did because it's what I get excited about. Like, I believe in a future where we can extract energy from water and create elements from water. 
And I think that the research by Mark LeClaire, a nanotechnology specialist, is super compelling. So if I've just introduced that possibility into the discussion and then people can jump on that and just refute it all day, I'm, I'm happy because I do think that we are really close to extremely beautiful vision emerging. And I think you're really mm. one of the fundamental pollinators of this vision. I would like to play some role um, and I hope others listening will too. Maybe you could um, uh, give us a list of, you know, maybe between five and 10 links to some of the most fascinating out there research it's kind of a big ask because I know it takes time to find like the gem, but the couple that you just mentioned, I'm really interested in. Yeah, t- totally. Like so Mark LeClaire, former Lockheed Martin uh, nanotechnologist has a company called Nanaspire and his presentations on water cavitation and everything he discovered regarding inducing um, stellar nucleosynthesis like event in his lab preceded by micro black hole formation that caused radiation poisoning in him. And wow. they fascinating story his his youtube videos are incredible um so he's well, you can just like just send me some things and i'll we'll put it in the description all right cool <laughs> but that's the kind of thing that gets me excited and of course foster kimberly gamble with thrive 2 probably very controversial uh i'm interested to see what they do with this release because mm-hmm. they're also really into getting so-called you know free energy or zero point energy out and it could be completely a hoax but i mean i would hope that there's some truth to it oh man i have like a whole thing about free energy um uh, again it's not the the right question isn't um whether it's objectively authentic or not it's it's that's that is a question you can ask and there's I'm, i'm aware of you know some of these um realms of exploration but there's a deeper question um that I would love to explore with you sometime, but I don't want to, it takes like really like 15 minutes to really lay it out. I'd love to hear it actually at some point. Um, The only other thing with regenerateproject.com is where I'm going to be reporting on things like bioremediation of radionuclides through bacteria, for example, or transforming plastic with oyster mushrooms like Stamet. Like I want to find solutions that are evidence-based, validated, that hopefully will help with a new vision of the world, you know, that's Did well. you read about the, uh, the fungi that are growing like inside the Chernobyl reactor? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mentioned in my book, cause melanin is such an important thing. I think for us to know about for sure. Right. Cool. Yeah. So, um, I think I just want to put in one more little thing about the, uh, polarization topic, just that, um, I, again, like I said, I have my opinions. Um, and sure, I would like people to agree with my opinions. I think the world would be better if everybody agreed that the war on terror should end or that, um, you know, holistic medicine should be funded or whatever. But more important than that, I would like us to become less identified with being right. Because in these polarized discussions, whichever one of us is right, which could be you and not me, what's it going to take for the person who's holding on to a damaging illusion to let go of that? What's it going to take for the truth to come out, for us to embrace the truth? What do we have to let go of? Um, 
I wish that we would take up that question. And I guess I have some answers to that question, but I want to put it in this conversation right now, just because uh, so much of what you've talked about, Sayer, is super controversial and triggers those reactions of dismissing, dehumanizing, uh, which are leveled at you all the time. Um, you know, if you look, if you look you up on uh, Wikipedia or something, you know, it's going to say all kinds of bad things about you. So, um, if and and just to circle back, like that explanation for why Sayer disagrees with what is so obviously true, well, he must be some version of bad. That's the same mindset as we were talking about with the war on germs, um, the war on terror, the war on the conspiracy, Illuminati, like all that is part of the same mentality. And fundamentally, the transition, the initiation that humanity is going through right now is into peace. It is in all dimensions, letting go of the war mentality, which says, improvement and progress and well-being comes through conquest. Conquest of the terrorist, the enemy, the germ, the controllers, conquest of Sayer G, intellectually vanquishing him, writing him off, getting rid of the bad people. Yeah, that's what we need to heal right now. Amen. That sounds good. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Yeah. This has been a new and ancient story with your host, Charles Eisenstein. I offer this podcast in the spirit of the gift, by which I mean that I don't withhold premium content for a price or put up paywalls or do affiliate marketing or have advertising or anything like that. Instead, I rely on supporters like you. If you would like to support it, you can subscribe at charleseisenstein.net for a small monthly amount, or you can subscribe for free as well. Either way, you get the same content, everything's the same, and you'll be notified every time a new podcast comes out. Also on the site, you can find archived episodes along with everything else that I produce, essays, books, videos, online courses. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll be with you again next time.